0: Race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And we are are back. Back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. Uh, I'm I'm Alyssa Fuchs. I'm Jackie Cowan. What's up?
1: And Stanley's not here. So (laughs) it's a
0: good
2: it's a good Sunday for all. <laughs>
1: Also, I think I may have forgot to mention, if you're listening, um, the politically preposterous community, we're going to be taking comments and questions from there as well. I know we've already received some. We're going to try and get people's comments and questions mentioned on the air later on in the segment. Um, But we're going to get to talking to Baltimore and make sure you keep tuning in for the News Roundup, our conversation about gun control, and our final quickie on same-sex marriage.
0: Yes, yes. So we're starting the show off again, talking about the Baltimore uprising. I'm pretty sure everyone has been glued to YouTube or TV, if that's how you choose to get your your news. Um, um, or maybe it's just me, but I think most people have been really tuned in about the death of Freddie Gray and the indictment that just happened on Friday. We know that Maryland State Attorney Marilyn Mos- Mosby she announced that the six officers involved in the death of Freddie Gray will actually face criminal charges. Mm-hmm. Three happen to be white. Three were um, African American but they will. They are facing criminal charges. One is actually being charged with second degree um, murder. We have two with manslaughter and two with just assault.
1: Yeah j- and just because people have asked about that. How is it second degree murder? He's actually being charged with what's called Depraved Heart Murder in Maryland Or in New York which is known as Essentially Depraved Indifference Murder And it's being it's not it's different from second degree murder where you intentionally kill somebody that you intend to kill. Like it's premeditated. Right. Well, no, that's first degree that's, murder okay. in New York where it's uh, the yeah. we'll not get into that. up, yeah. um <laughs> but it, what essentially what that charge is about is that you are so depraved, you have such a wanton and willful depravity towards human life wow. that it will be considered a murder. Wow. Right. Um so right. that's exactly how you get a second degree murder charge. And and so what they're arguing is that the driver of the car had such indifference difference to whether freddie gray lived or died based on the way they that he was put in the van and right. also the way that the van was driven around yeah. that it would qualify as a murder so that's how you get wow. just for those of you who can, are interested in that legal aspect of
0: it, no that's very true and guys if you want to call up the numbers 212-650-6903 no that i mean that's exactly right and so what's been going on in baltimore there were a string of peaceful protests for at least one week we didn't hear too much about it um you know we, we saw a friend Gray, the hashtag and you saw things going on, but you didn't hear about it. And it wasn't until this past week, in which you saw more looting and rioting and violence and buildings set on fire, then we get we get national press coverage. We get a, um, a, um, a number of reporters on the ground, and it's headlining news. Right. And a lot of media outlets, especially Fox, like, you know, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, they focus so much on the sensation of this violence taking place in Baltimore. I actually saw a clip on Fox News. It went viral where um, this Fox News reporter, he was talking to council member Nick Mosby and he was asking him, like, OK, what do you think about the, the rioting and the looting that's going on? And he was like, well, you know what? I It's wrong and I condemn it. But we have to remember that there's a number of contributing factors to why right. people are so angry number one when you lack educational opportunities you don't necessarily know how to articulate that anger and frustration that's been built up and, and building up and culminating for so long and it's coming out like this but again we know it's wrong and we're stopping it and he said again well do you see them looting that liquor store right behind you and he was like again sir I, I mean yes that is wrong and we're doing everything we can but there are systemic problems there's poverty there's homelessness there's hopelessness there's you know, again, uh, no access to to a good education, and people don't see a way of for for them to have some type of upward mobility, and that's what's really plaguing this system. And the, and the, and the reporter asked him again, and you know what, Nick Mo, Nick Molesby, he finally just got really frustrated, and he just walked away. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good. That's the only thing you can do in that situation where you're being
2: asked the same question over and over again. That I think he answered very eloquently, right? I mean, the way that I think about it, I've talked to a lot of people this week that have said you know, that have commented on the violence, right, and the looting and have um you know, have said, doesn't this take away from the protests at hand? Like doesn't this distract everybody? Like is that but you know, what I say to that is, you know, if that's what the media is focusing on are
1: the violent riots and protests. Um, that's the problem with the media more than right. I mean, it's it's certainly not. Well, it's because the media is not there focusing on the systemic issues that are going on in Baltimore right. for, for years and years and years. I mean, you have overarching poverty, lack of education, lack of economic opportunities, lack of jobs. There's all these underlying issues that contribute to, you know, all to the, the systemic problems. But the media does Focus on them, and as also Selena pointed out, when they were having peaceful protests in the first week, the media wasn't down there focusing on that. The media only gets involved to focus once uh, you know people start looting and setting stuff on fire. And you know what? I'm not in favor necessarily of uh, you know violent outrages, but at the same time, when you're talking about like you have these people talking about how like it's more important to protect property than it is to protect the rights of people or the lives of people, and and then there's also the hypocrisy of people like Fox News when those white guys were out in the desert on Bundy Ranch right, exactly. uh, uh, threatening to have an armed insurrection against the federal government over land that right. the federal government owned the people on Fox were like Good for them. I can't even even say what I want to say, but put it this way. They were getting aroused (laughs) over the fact that white men were out there with guns threatening law enforcement. When black people threaten law enforcement or even perceived to have threatened law enforcement. You know, what JFK once said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable.
0: It's true. There's a big difference between black rage and white rage. And we've seen that time and time again in America. But I want to introduce the very special guest we have on the line to join the conversation with us. We have Diana Morris. She is the director of the Open Society Institute in Baltimore, and she's also heading the Open Places Initiative. Um, good
1: morning, Diana. Oh, oh, let me get her back on the line. And we're having some technical issues. While we try and get Diana back on the line, somebody had asked me... Um, Uh, on politically preposterous and obviously if you have a question or comment make sure you tweet us Um, isn't the police citizen problem in Baltimore more about class than race and I think even I could answer this question um, and I have a feeling Diana once she comes back on the line will agree with me but I wrote to a certain extent yes but there's an interplay between race and class and then Pamela wrote back I think most of it is because of a sense of entitlement and bullying all marginalized people are way easier to mistreat without ramifications Mm. and no I don't think racism is dead I think it's getting Worse, the media and political hate and fear mongering contribute to it. Yes, yeah. yeah so-, so
2: I think I mean you made the point before, but I certainly agree that there's you know it scares a lot of people that there's rioting and that there's this violent um, behavior. But you have it, you don't have to condone it necessarily to understand why it's happening and to understand that this is part of a bigger problem and when you're you know you're stifled and you're treated in this way for so long where there's violence perpetuated against you and you're dealing with it for so long without reacting in any way how can you you know judge or blame anyone for having it you know
1: Right. I mean, listen, Being I tired of an, it. another great quote. I don't want to like sit here on the air and like read great, great quotes right. from great people. But there are a lot of them are truisms that need to be dealt with. I mean, like Martin Luther King said, freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Right. So that's what it comes down to when you keep oppressing people and oppressing people for so long that, and, you know, and, and with income inequality and the people who are bearing the brunt of it. And then also, as our great commenter pointed out, that people who are oppressed are the easiest people to take advantage of I mean I see that every day in my practice and uh, um, you know like the people are take who are being taken advantage of the the most um, are people who are in minority groups I mean right. like I talk to people all the time I, I say do you want to guess how many of my clients are white and it's like three right um, and and it's even a comment I made the other day I was at a rally up on 125th Street and I said you know they're not Coming, you know, people are spitting on the sidewalk and smoking a joint on their balcony and drinking a glass of wine, and yet, no, on the Upper East Side, but they're not ticketing people on the Upper East Side for that. They're only ticketing people up in this community, and and quite frankly, that's a load of crap. Right. Well, it goes back to that issue of
2: sort of white privilege and the crime wall, white, you know debate that we've had on the show before where, you know, white people in this country certainly have experienced the the benefits of community policing, right? right. Where they can call the cops and expect that the cops are going to come and, you know, do their best to protect them, protect their rights. And this is certainly a white privilege to get to experience that when it should be something for everyone. That's, you know, the point of community policing is to protect the people that you serve, right? But certainly in Baltimore, in parts of New York, and cities and towns all over the country that is you know a different reality for many groups of people
1: um who don't get to experience the the benefits of policing absolutely absolutely on that note i believe we have now solved the technical issue we have diana morris from open society is on the line with us good morning diana good morning good morning
0: good morning morning. sorry about that Um, Diana but again Diana is from the Open Society Institute in Baltimore she's also spearheading the Open Places initiative Um, and again we're having this conversation about the Baltimore uprising and I wanted to get her feedback you guys had great commentary but Diana when it it comes to what's going on in Baltimore can you speak to some again these larger issues you know I I did some research and I found out that um, when it comes to education when it comes to joblessness and um the neighborhood where freddie gray is actually from those numbers actually double the amount that they double the rate in the state itself so you see like this concentrated in this concentrated area of poverty there's so many other issues can you speak to those issues
3: yes i'd be happy to i mean we can talk about education uh, maybe in particular just as an example uh You know, I note that it was way back in 1968 that the Kerner Commission talked about, uh, you know, the two societies that make up the United States. And, uh, you know, the thing that's very uh, upsetting is how little progress we've actually made on discrimination and segregation, um, housing practices, unemployment, and, and educational attainment. Now, I will say... You know, in the area of education, there has been some steady progress. But if you see where we are today, it's still so far uh, from the mark of where we'd want to get.
0: right.
3: Uh, I mean, for example, um, and and this is an area um, actually where there's a lot of there's some gender difference too. If you look at the graduation rate uh, for African American males, it's around sixty two and a half percent. So just think how many young African-American boys are not graduating um, in a four-year period. A few more can do it within a five-year period, but still it's really far. Uh, when it comes to African-American uh, girls, they're, they're graduating at a, a sort of 76 percent rate, so that's better, but it's still not as good as what we would have statewide. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's part of the challenge But if you dig a little deeply, uh, you uh, you can begin to see what what are some of those mechanisms here? What's happening? And one thing I know at Open Society Institute we've been focusing on has been suspensions. There's been a huge number of kids, particularly kids of color, particularly African-American boys, who have been suspended over the years from school. And these have been (laughs) for causes that really have not required that. So... The good news is that the Baltimore City public school system uh, and partners, including us, have worked and we've been able to reduce suspensions that were as high as 26,000 kids being suspended every year to below below 5,000.
0: Right. Um. So, so Diana, that leads me to the question of, so why exactly <clears throat> is this coming? We Is this happening? We know for a fact that, you know, it does start very early um, amongst the youth. And then, you know, if they're getting suspended and they're being very discouraged in school, that does affect their opportunities to be employed as an adult and their outlook on life. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys are definitely getting to the root of the problem. Um, and I know that that is one of the roots of the problem. And you also spoke about, you know, the progress in the city. But But then when we look at Baltimore and we realize that the mayor is black over, I think it's what, 3000 over half of Baltimore's police force. They're also African-American. The city council president is African-American. The The district attorney. The police chief is African-American. And I, I actually read this online where someone was like, okay, the issue is not Racial, right? You know, because they have like this there's this is progress. You have a lot of people of color being elected to different um, positions of authority there, and they can and they're and they're changing things. Um, but you still see these problems affecting this racial group. So what would you say to that?
3: Well, I've seen articles, for example, a recent article by David Simon, who you all mm-hmm. know uh, you know as it's involved with the wire and um the series homicide and so on. Um, I think what that analysis is missing is realizing this is not about individual bias. Sometimes, of course, we have that. You know, sometimes there are people, because the town is so segregated, people really don't get to know each other. People don't really, I mean, one of the great advantages, I think, living in New York is that people really get to know each other and enjoy each other. Um, and, and, and have a kind of empathy that develops, but when you live in a place that's highly segregated, there literally is less interaction, and so there can, in fact, be uh, individual bias, uh, lack of understanding, lack of empathy, and we do have to address that, but I think the bigger issue here, and, this, and when uh, David Simon says that he thinks this is a class issue and not a race issue, I think what's missing there is understanding this is about structural racism. This is about the kind of racism that results from policies and practices that whole agencies undertake. So, yes, uh, you know, the good news I think, is if you have a more enlightened leadership, uh, including people from uh, you know, different backgrounds, African-American backgrounds, then you can become more aware and you can provide leadership, but you still have to deal at the institutional level. For example, our police force is disproportionately large, Uh, so Mm. that allows for a lot of uh, over-policing. We also um, have most of our police coming from outside the city, and there's often a lot of vacancies. There's a lot of turnover because people get trained in Baltimore City, and then they go off to the surrounding counties where the pay might be better and the job might be easier. Um, so you don't have as much familiarity to, um, as people talk a lot about um, the police that used to literally walk around more. And there's been small adjustments. Recently, Commissioner Bass, literally, I think about two or three months ago, required each of his, uh, his people who are on parole and not back at the office to spend a half an hour literally out of their cars and walking. Oh, wow. But, but you can argue that's not enough. Right. Uh, but it's a beginning in the right direction. It,
0: it, and that's exactly right, Diana. Hold on with that thought. We actually have to go to a quick break. But when we come back, we'll continue talking about the Baltimore uprising and the larger issues at hand right here and Let Your Voice Be Heard.
1: And we are back. This my name is Alyssa Fuchs. I'm here with Selena Hill and Jackie Cohen. We're talking to Diana Morris from the Open Societies Foundation about uh, what's going on in Baltimore with respect to uh, the underlying issues of poverty, lack of education, um, and other systematic uh, racism, unemployment, etc. Um, and so, hi, Diana. Uh, my name is Alyssa. One of the things that you had mentioned um, was about the policies and practices of the city. Now, a lot of people on the right, and I don't necessarily agree with them, but I thought I'd bring this point up. They have said that, you know, Democrats and progressives essentially have been running the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore for a long, long time, and that these problems are caused by big government, right? That's the classic, like, libertarian conservative line. It's big government. It's big government. And if we got government, these progressive policies out of Baltimore, and that we allowed the free market to to work its way, then these people would have more jobs and more economic opportunity. Is that something you agree with? Do you think it has to do with like who's in power? I mean, how does that work?
3: You know, I guess heard uh, Congressman Rand uh, say something to the same effect. Uh, I guess on Face the Nation, and again, I think it's missing the point. This is uh, there are always going to be exceptional persons who can, despite all odds. Uh, breakthrough and um, be successful, and that's very consistent with this uh, a, a story we tell about, um, you know, entrepreneurship in, in the United States. What that is completely missing, though, is an understanding of the very real barriers that people uh, who are poor and who uh, have experienced uh, racial discrimination for generations uh, confront. And, you know, that has to, that results in very real patterns. Uh, Baltimore, for example, uh, there was a report by the Justice Policy Institute a couple of years ago. We were putting in jail more of our population than any of the uh, 20 largest cities, uh, you know, with jails. Um, a couple of summers ago, um, the uh, ACLU, the NAACP, brought a lawsuit against um, when uh, Governor O'Malley was mayor of the city, for having arrested more people during a summer than any other city, including for all sorts of alleged uh, nuisance crimes. Uh, at one point, there were so many people being arrested that even the prosecutors were dropping at least a third of them and not following up on them because they didn't—they um, weren't—they weren't substantiated by any kind of evidence. So, I think what that what that shows is that if you're in a situation where you are blocked from opportunity, then this idea that um, an individual can make all the difference by simply using some government resources well um, is is, is just not the case. Uh, What we really have to do is look at some of the underlying issues. Um, Now with the Affordable Care Act, people can have access, for example, to mental health care and drug addiction treatment. But we know that many people have been incarcerated. We did a study a few years back to look and see what was happening to people who were being let out of prison with absolutely no kind of support services. Very, very high number of those people ended up homeless. Right. So those are, that's an example of a practice. I mean, it, it, it's not that that individual didn't take care. It's that that individual maybe should never have been incarcerated in the first place because they have an underlying disease of mental health or addiction. Right. We're never able to get insurance like many so of the more affluent um, counterparts, including, a, a, you know, a great majority of people who are um, have right. not experienced other kinds of discrimination. So that's the kind of systemic right. barriers we have to Exactly.
0: Look at. Um, we actually have a caller on the line. We have Jay from Harlem who would like to let his voice be heard. Jay, are you there?
4: Yes, I am. And I appreciate you taking my call. Now, I don't want to... Allow myself to try and remember people's names or uh, even your guests. I'll just go right into the subject. Um, I appreciate your guests for uh, being very open about uh, the problem, and it is systemic. uh, But I think that there's one more um, portion that none of us are speaking about. And that uh, situation that uh, I would like to make a presentation about is the, uh, the fact of the Homeland Security Act. Uh, we all agreed that um, our nation was terrorized, and New York to include uh, the, uh, the main city that we call uh, the uh, center or the, you know, the, uh, the brunt of the uh, terrorists. Uh, so the Homeland Security Act was um, put into place. Uh, I accommodate people who think that we needed homeland security. Just like um, when we think of these arrests, uh, like your guest is uh, making the statement about, uh, the more arrests, in my view, the more people have a reason to have a job. So, of course, if your main uh, energy is to uh, keep a job, then you shoot up the arrest rate. But the more significant uh, portion is that these people come out now with a criminal record and they're not allowed to vote. So that when we speak about voting rights and whether uh, it's uh, black crime or white crime, all of these things all of these things, go out the window because what we're actually speaking about is not class, it's not race, it's not any of those things. It's like your guest pronounced. This is an apparatus that was put in place not right. for control but for power. Exactly, and that Jay. Is thank terrorism. S- exactly. thank you. Terrorism.
0: Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much for that thank comment. You. I want to give um, Diana a chance to respond to that very insightful and important point that you just made, Diana. Absolutely.
3: Uh, you know Brian Stevenson, uh, whom many of you uh, may know, he's the sort of foremost. Uh, uh, advocates who get rid of the death penalty, but has expanded his work, just came out with a book called Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption, and I, I should say he's also on the National Board of Open Society Foundations. He talks often, uh, when talking about the Homeland Security Act, about how terrorism is certainly nothing new on, uh, on you know, in our territory, and that if we look at our own history, And the experience of African Americans, we will see many, many examples of terrorism and, of course, um, very distinct efforts uh, for control. So I certainly would recommend his most recent book and some of his other uh, writing if if anyone has any doubt about the examples. And one of the, in addition to the voting and all the restrictions that have recently popped up in states to restrict voting, um, the other thing, of course, is the mass incarceration. Uh, we have so many people incarcerated. Uh, even in Baltimore, if you look at the jail, the majority of people being held in that jail have not even been convicted. They're literally pending trial. And we have a money bail system, which, including for people who were just arrested, where the bail being asked for is very, very high. And it's a business. Right. It's a business that needs to end. Because it's not based on the two things that are legitimate when someone's in jail, which is to ask, are they a public safety risk, or may they abscond and not show up for their trial? Right. And if the answer is no to that, then money should not be the reason why we're holding people.
2: It shouldn't be. Absolutely. And I know we have more people in prisons and incarcerated than ever before. And there's a higher rate of prison violence than ever before. Um, and the recidivism rate, you know, is astronomical. So it's just perpetuating this bigger issue. Um, a note about about terrorism, um, something that um, I found out about this week was the NYPD uh terrorism anti-terrorism unit was actually brought out to the protests um, you know with the protesters standing together in solidarity um, with those in Baltimore to monitor protester be- activity and sort of you know lend a hand I guess if need be and I thought that this was really I don't know <laughs> it was really scary um, and sort of showed how the city views these protests as, as you know protesters taking part in the solidarity movement as terrorists I mean I don't know sort of what to think of that but it was really disheartening what do you, what do you, what would you say about that
3: I would say that um, just here in Baltimore region let alone across the country we have a huge job ahead of us to change the narrative I in other words uh, there are people who took in uh, this whole experience and fixated on uh, the looting and the destruction that occurred and really have not understood the decades-long discrimination and undercutting of opportunity that's that's happened that has resulted in completely broken relationships between the police and the community. Right. And so we really have to do, we have to to really pay attention to that. We have to work together uh, to really change people's understanding, to really reframe what the issue is, Uh, Because I think that, um, you know, your example with, you know, there's a lot of other monitors out there, too, of course, also making sure uh, that the police response to ordinary citizens and residents is appropriate. So there are a lot of people who have obviously volunteered their time, including sort of legal observers, people who are going to be helping at the jail, people who are going to be helping with these bail hearings, uh, and so on. But... I I don't think we, especially with obviously some of the portrayals on the media, and even just because of segregation, there's a lack of understanding of the kind of advantage that a lot of um, white people have experienced. Uh, And over the years, I mean, you know, there's good examples of that, just the way uh, mortgages work. Uh, That was something that benefited a lot of uh, of the white population, allowing them to develop wealth. That was something that largely wasn't available uh, to African-American populations. So I think it's really important for people to understand the policies that have been in place that have both helped certain populations and disadvantaged families.
0: Right. Um, we actually have Omar from Harlem on the line who would like to let his voice be heard. Omar, are you there?
5: Yes, thank you so much. And uh, to your guest, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is very depressing uh, to me to even have to talk about this subject. Because I keep hearing the same thing over and over and over. You can say over for the next 10 years if you want to. You know, back in the 60s, and I'm a product of the 60s, I lived in different countries and I saw the way African Americans are treated in other countries. In many of the countries, we're put on a pedestal. And because, because of our chutzpah, if you will, for lack of a better terminology. When you come back here and, uh, it seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, I, I, uh, was, uh, a respecter of a gentleman by the name of Elijah Muhammad. He was a man who had a third grade education and his whole, uh, his whole thing was do for self make your own jobs, they own restaurants, they own their own businesses, they own hotels, farmland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the government was down on them 24-7. And a lot of these young people, they're products of their environment. We know that. But you have the computer age now. People can get on a computer. They make their own jobs. They have family members making a very, very decent living doing computer work giving back to the community, paying their taxes also, by the way. So what I'm saying is it's not a lack of jobs. A lot of times it's a lack of the gumption. It's a lack of the chutzpah. We all grew up uh, in, a, in a system where there was segregation, and, and you talk about terrorism. I did a lot of work with the Red Power Movement. If you think people were terrorized, just, just go up to one of those Indian reservations when you have time and see the way the brothers and sisters are living as we speak. Right. Yes, we speak right. Right. thank right. you so service.
0: much for that. Omar. I wanna I want to follow up to that
2: point. Um, and certainly this this idea of, you know, internet access and technology, um, as this new wave of people, you know, building business and stimulating our economy is certainly I, I think that's a really good point to bring up. However, if you look at the technology industry, um it's predominantly run by white males. Um it, you know, no women, very few oh, that's not true. There's women, but th- compared to the amount of men in the technology industry, and there's and and very really few people of color who don't have access to maybe the same kinds of computers and technology that these you know, and more the educational know how. Exactly. So that's a huge problem in and of itself that we have to address is how are we going to increase, um, you know, access to this technology to
0: many different groups of people? Right. Um, unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up, but I want to give, again, our very special guest some time to tell everyone how they can reach out to um, her as well as her organization and get more involved, especially if they live in Baltimore. Uh, uh,
3: well, well, thank you very much. Um, you know, people could certainly look at our website, which is uh, www.audaciousideas.org, uh, and we would be uh, happy to have a you all to get information there. Another group um, is uh, Baltimore United for Change, and that has very impressive youth leaders, uh, groups coming together, the Algebra Project, Leaders for a Beautiful Struggle, Casa de de Maryland, uh, and many others. This is a very impressive group of of young people who are well-organized, well-informed, and have a policy agenda. They're dealing with some of the immediate needs, but they have a long-term systemic policy agenda. And I think what's going to be required for all of us is the kind of chutzpah, perhaps, that um, the last caller mentioned, that mm-hmm. we need to do advocacy. We need to do advocacy that's sustained, that talks about the underlying causes. Education is a universal right, and we have to make sure that it's high quality. So every student, in fact, could have the preparation to take a technology job
1: definitely definitely
3: or to be an entrepreneur so thank you very much for uh, focusing on this topic it's it's tremendously important and unfortunately baltimore is just typical of other cities where we have got to repair uh, the police community relations, but we also have to insist on police accountability. Absolutely. Yes, thank you
0: so much again, Diana Morris from the Open Society Institute. That was great.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm really happy that Diana brought up the idea of education, um, and certainly it should be a right, right? This is not, and unfortunately, it's not, right? There's inadequate education. Um, it's certainly not you know, equal and quality education across the board for all citizens. And that's something that we really need to work to repair. um, And that will, you know, that combined with police reform um, and holding our police officers accountable and making sure that they can't, you know, they, they don't have any, in many of these cases, reverence for certain human life and for certain bodies that they're, you know, supposed to be protecting and serving. They just don't. And so that's where we get into this issue. And, you know, we, we, As activists are sort of feeling disenfranchised because we thought, okay, well, you know, after um, we caught acts of this, you know, like this on camera, there's going to be some change. But there hasn't. We've seen these acts be repeated by police officers across the country over and over and over again. So we need to, you know, certainly pair this improvement
1: of the education system with an overhaul of our police absolutely. System. I mean, I like, you know, I just wanted to note something and it goes back to the theme of education and equal education. Brown versus Board of Ed was decided in 1954. And yet we still have some of the most segregated school systems, especially in inner cities like New York City, like Baltimore, then, you know, it, and, and remember, it's 2015. So it's been, you know, over 30 years since Brown versus Board of Education was decided. And yet we still see the systemic problem within education, as well as obviously within police accounts. Um, and within civil rights issues um, you know there's something else that I wanted to say which is as this goes back to the theme that I talk about a lot which is that everything is related to everything else that you know lack of jobs lack of education lack of economic opportunity leads to situations where people find that they have no other outlets so that ends up putting them in uh, just a worse position to start with and unless and if we want to address the issues of the criminal justice system we and we should and we have to uh, but we also have have to address the underlying issues of poverty and education, etc. Um, you know. Final note on that is somebody throughout the segment—I don't know who it was—mentioned the wire, and Selena and I had had a conversation about the wire off air on Thursday night, and Stanley had made a mention that like that's the only thing that like white people care about when it comes to Baltimore, right. which is like oh they're like so into the wire, um uh, and and that's like a legitimate point, and it brings me back to something that I started the segment, which is that justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as out. Outraged as those who are and that's Ben Franklin and that's what it comes down to is like you can't just watch the wire and be like oh this is a great show like you know entertainment value if you're one of the white people that's watching the wire and getting great entertainment value out of it remember that that's based on not necessarily true events but it's based on the real Baltimore and the real background of how Baltimore is and if you think that's just entertainment like you need to look at the deeper issues you need to look at yourself and say I have to be affected by this I can't just take this as entertainment value I have to think like oh wait, these things are really going on in Baltimore. How? What can I do right. if I really care about this issue and I really think this is horrible? What can I do to better my community, to better the community of Baltimore and to better our country as a whole?
0: Right. And, you know, thank you so much for that, Alyssa. There is something that we all can do. And number one, it's paying attention, being involved, talking about it at work, on social media, joining the protest movement. Again, um, besides... The outrage that's been going on nationally and the fact that that outrage helped lead to the um, indictment of these police officers. It's also been holding media accountable. I heard on MSNB, an MSNBC host, her name is Joy Reid. She said it herself that she's been following the commentary that she, and the feedback she gets from her coverage on the ground in Baltimore. And she said that a lot of people have been complaining, saying that, you know, we're focusing on the violence and we're focusing on the looting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we want to make sure that we're giving you what you want and the fact is when we speak out and we let our voices be heard saying that it's wrong for these police officers to just get a slap on the wrist and it's wrong for media to continue to cover it in this very sensational way that only that doesn't help the problem when we say this and we come together and we make our voices heard then it does actually lead to change and it has been leading to change and we'll continue to follow this story again an indictment is not a verdict so we'll, we'll continue to follow this and we'll see if those police officers will indeed be held accountable. Stay tuned. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard.